Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today we're going to hear a lecture that was given by Dr. Carl Broughton here at Beeson Divinity School back in 2009 called The Church is Part of the Gospel. This actually was a part of a conference that we put on called Evangelicals and Nicene Faith, Reclaiming the Apostolic Witness. And in this particular sermon, Dr. Broughton is talking about the doctrine of the church and what it means for the church to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Dr. Carl Broughton has been one of the leading theologians and teachers in the Lutheran Church for more than 50 years, edited many, many books, been a teacher to so many of us. One of his best books, in my opinion, is called Mother Church, Ecclesiology and Ecumenism, published by Fortress Press. So let's go and listen to this sermon by not only a great theologian, but also a wonderful preacher and lecturer, Dr. Carl Broughton. The church is part of of the gospel. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have read some verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, to ground the faith we confess in the familiar words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We might ask, how did these words get into the creed when they are not in the Bible? Nowhere in the New Testament is the church described as one holy Catholic and apostolic. The words Catholic and apostolic never appear at all. And while the words one and holy are used in many connections, there is no reference to the one holy church. Such observations have led some Christians and even denominations to try to make do without the creeds of the church. No creeds but Christ. That's a slogan of one American church body. Not too far from that are several slogans from my tradition, from the Protestant Reformation, like scripture alone, word alone. I happen to be an heir of Luther's reform movement but I would confess to you that I do not much like the word alone. How could I, when growing up, I was made to memorize a lot of other stuff. Not only the red-letter passages in the Gospels, but every word of Luther's catechism. The small catechism and many traditional hymns to boot. There was a lot of tradition besides the word alone. And years later, when I entered the seminary and studied theology, like many of you are doing now, we had to learn the meaning of every word in the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And then we had to learn the chief confessions of the huge Lutheran Book of Concord. We did that because the mainstream of the Christian tradition holds that the creeds are but summaries of the core truths of the Bible. The creeds are like a map that helps us to make our journey through the scriptures without getting lost. The creeds 
account for the difference between a church and a cult. The cults also say they believe in the Bible, every word of it. But they get its message wrong. And many modern biblical scholars also misinterpret the Bible because they try to read it without the eyes of faith as the book of the church. Eventually, I became grateful for all the hard work to learn the creeds of the ancient church and the confessions of the 16th century Reformation. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's a slice of the great creedal and confessional tradition. But sadly, I have to admit that inasmuch as I was raised in the context of Lutheran pietism, we did not dwell much on the church. In theology, we would say we had a weak ecclesiology. Pietism had its strengths. It laid a strong emphasis on the way of salvation and on world missions. My father and mother were Norwegian Lutheran pietists. They went to Madagascar to preach the gospel of salvation to the Malagasy people. They planted a vibrant church, a growing church, but that phrase, one holy Catholic and apostolic, was not high on the list of missionary priorities. This was, of course, before the rise of the modern ecumenical movement. Things have changed, and they have changed precisely because of the collective missionary experience. The contemporary vision of the oneness of the church was born in India. Missionaries from different denominations experienced that their lack of a unified witness was an obstacle to winning people to Christ. If there are many churches competing with each other and often condemning each other's teachings, how should people decide which one is true? When I was a fledgling, fledgling seminary student, I recall hearing Dr. E. Stanley Jones speak about his experience as a Methodist missionary in India. He told about the many churches witnessing to the gospel in India. Each of them brings a special God-given gift to the missionary enterprise. The Anglicans bring their appreciation of formal liturgical worship. Presbyterians, their concern for church order. Methodists, their stress on holy living. Lutherans, their belief in pure doctrine. Baptists, their zeal for face-to-face -face and pioneer evangelism, and so forth. Then E. Stanley Jones summed it up by saying something I've never forgotten. In conversion, you are not attached to an order, nor an institution, nor a movement, nor a set of beliefs, nor a code of actions. You are attached primarily to a person and secondarily to all of these other things, which very important things. I believe that is exactly right today, too. It is on account of the person of Jesus the Christ that we dare to believe some paradoxical things about the church. The church is one, yet most obviously divided. Divided, as anyone can see. The church is holy, yet full of sinners, each and every one of us. The church is Catholic, 
Yet every denomination tends to be centered on its own parochial interests. The church is apostolic, yet it has sometimes strayed from the teachings of the apostles, veering away from orthodoxy into heresy. These statements about the church are paradoxical because they seem to contradict what you can see, what ordinary eyes can see. And that is why we say we believe it. It's not something you can see. It's not a matter of sight. Before we confess our faith in the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic, we have already confessed our faith in Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, true God and true man. It is solely on account of Christ, solely on account of Christ, that we dare to confess that the church is one. The church is one because it is the body of Christ. There are many church bodies, but Christ has only one body. There are many members in the one body of Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in his letters to the Romans and the Corinthians. If you believe in Jesus as God's Messiah and are baptized into the name of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are a member of the body of Christ. The whole gospel of God includes both Christ and the church. The church is part of the gospel because Christ is the head of the church and the church is the body of Christ. The head and the body belong together, forming the whole Christ. They are one, and that is why we believe in the one church. There is nothing we can do to make the church one. The church is already one in Christ. So why don't we show it more? And that is what the church is working together in dialogue and in service is all about, to find better ways of showing what is already the case, our unity in the gospel, so that the world might believe. That is what Jesus prayed, unity and faith for the sake of the world, for the sake of the world's salvation. Does it bother you as it does me when any given church proclaims itself to be the one and only true church of Jesus Christ? Just like it bothers me when one nation boasts of being the greatest in the world. It reminds me of kids on a playground bragging that my dad can beat up on your dad. Which takes us to the next point. The church is holy. We know, you all know it's not. There is no church without sin, without spot or wrinkle. The holiness of the church resides in Christ and Christ alone. As members of his body, we are called to be holy as he is holy. And we believe the Holy Spirit is working to sanctify every member of the body of Christ. It's at best a work in progress. Every day we pray for the forgiveness of sins. And the next day we start over again. And we struggle to bring forth the fruits of faith pleasing to God. I recall how shocked I was when... A college classmate of mine at St. Olaf College in Minnesota returned from a spiritual retreat and we were having coffee in the lion's den and 
he was thanking God that he was now sinless. He claimed that he had received the spiritual gift of entire sanctification, of sinless perfection. The spiritual retreat was operated by a small group of charismatic Lutherans in Minnesota. I really didn't want to join them. Years later, I was recruited to debate the concept of sinless perfection at a theological conference with a renowned uh, Methodist theologian. I'm not going to tell you his name. In his defense of the idea, he added so many qualifications along with the admission that, that sinless perfection is not to be taken literally. Well, he knew he was talking to a Lutheran who was a big sinner. I have known many Mother Teresa-like self-sacrificing saintly servants of Christ, but none who claimed to be perfectly sinless and holy. A Lutheran theologian doesn't often quote a Reformed confession, but one can hardly say it better than the Westminster Confession, which states the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. If we had any doubt about that, all we need to do is to read the newspaper headlines, which love to publicize the heresies of Anglican bishops, the marital infidelities of evangelical televangelists, and the sexual misconduct of Catholic priests. Since churches are made up of their members, they are in and of themselves the tradition says a corpus mixtum, a mixed body, it's a mixed bag. A tennis friend of mine says he doesn't go to church because it's so full of hypocrites. I countered true, but that's why I go to church, to be part of the company of sin sinners who, who need to repent and to receive the forgiveness of their sins and to beg God to help to mend their ways. It is true. We are not free of the sin of hypocrisy and holier-than-thou demeanors, but still we confess that the church is holy, but solely on account of Christ, who is holy, who is the essence of the church in the form of his body. Does this make sense? It's a paradox. The Apostle Paul says it's a mystery. The church is holy and sinful at the same time. Holy because of Christ and sinful because of us. We, the members of the body of Christ. The most controversial attribute of the church is next. The church is Catholic. This mark of the church has been misunderstood by Protestants and Catholics. Many Protestants won't use the term at all. They prefer to say Christian rather than Catholic. They have surrendered the term Catholic to the Church of Rome. And that is understandable in a way because many Roman Catholics have claimed the exclusive right to the term for their own particular church. Look, the word is in the creed. It's our creed. So there's no good reason to give it up. The word Catholic means universal. Though the word is not in the New Testament, its meaning is clearly present in Jesus' great commission to the apostles in Matthew 28. To go and tell the gospel to the whole world, to all the nations, that is being Catholic. 
That is the church universal, worldwide church. St. Ignatius of Antioch was the first to apply the word Catholic to the church at the beginning of the second century. You can find it in the letter Bishop Ignatius wrote to the Christians at Smyrna on his way to Rome to face martyrdom. If your church believes in spreading the gospel of the kingdom of Christ throughout the world, then your church, no matter how dinky it is, is truly Catholic, as Catholic as any other. It simply belongs to the nature of the church to witness to Christ everywhere, always, and to everyone. The enterprise began the instant the apostles received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We believe in the Catholic Church because we are committed to the universal mission of the world-transforming gospel. I try to teach my students two things. Please, please don't give up the word Catholic from your definition of the church, from your vision of the church. And please don't give in to the propaganda of any church that claims it exclusively for itself. So far, so good. We believe in the one holy Catholic Church. The fourth attribute of the church is my favorite. The church is apostolic. It is apostolic or it is not the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. And he built it on the foundation of the apostles and he is indeed its chief cornerstone. The apostolic church handed down to us six inalienable characteristics which have belonged to the church from the beginning until now. Even if you have not studied Greek, you are probably familiar with six Greek words which have become part of every student's theological lexicon. Kerygma, Martyria, Didache, Koinonia, Diakonia, Liturgia. Now the students are going to be given a test at lunch. See if you can remember. Kerygma, Martyria, Didache, Koinonia, Diakonia, Liturgia. From the apostles, we received the Kerygma the message of Jesus and about Jesus. The apostles have given us their testimony, their witness, their martyria. They were martyrs for Christ. They were witnesses. And because of their witness, they were martyred. We have received the didache, the teaching of the apostles. We have been included into their koinonia, their fellowship, the fellowship of the apostles through prayer and the breaking of bread. And the apostles made diakonia a fundamental part of the Christian life, caring, the caring ministry of the church for the poor and the hungry and the oppressed. And finally, the apostles gathered the people of Christ together for liturgia, for public acts of prayer, praise, and, and thanksgiving. It's the worship of the people of God, their liturgy. Do you mean that we've received all of this stuff 
from the apostles? We believe in the apostolic church. We believe in the apostolic church. Why should we care so much about the marks or the attributes of the church? Why is it important for each and every one of us today? Martin Luther worried a lot about the church, whether the church in his time was being faithful to its God-given apostolic nature. He asked, in effect, how can a poor person tell a true church from a false church? Well, it's not easy. We live in a highly mobile society. When a Christian moves to a new city, the question becomes urgent. How do I find a church I can trust? A church that will pass on the true Christian faith to my children. Already in the second century, this became a crucial issue. There were Christians who touted their belief in Christ and were impressively spiritual. Irenaeus and Tertullian were two ancient church fathers who wrote books against the Gnostics, against the heresy of Gnosticism. The Gnostics rejected the Old Testament. They rejected the God of creation, the God of Israel, the God who gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Instead, they wanted to know only the God of salvation, Christ the Redeemer, and experience their freedom in the gospel, their, their freedom from obedience to the law. They were what we call antinomians, antinomians. If you haven't learned that word, learn it and get rid of the idea. Their message of freedom sounded so appealing. It beguiled many well-intentioned people in quest of a relevant spirituality, just like today. We're in the same boat today. The New Age spirituality promises that you can know and experience God by turning inward, by looking inside of yourself. But it was then and it is now a false gospel. There are theologians today trying to invent a new Christianity. They talk about inventing a new Christianity. We're tired of the old Christianity. You're tired of those old shoes. You're tired of that old suit. You want something new, a new Christianity. These are members of the so-called Jesus Seminary. They are portraying a Jesus that looks and sounds like themselves. They say they love Jesus, but it's a Jesus created in their own image, just like the Gnostics of the ancient church. It has been my privilege to travel around the world, to meet Christians and churches on every continent except Antarctica, where there are no people, only penguins, <laughs> and to, to study and to teach in many countries and schools around the globe. Quite naturally, the first thing I tried to do is to learn the state of the church in this land and then to find a place to worship. I have always been most pleased to find congregations that are evangelical in mission and orthodox in doctrine. How can I tell one from another? I have attended churches that preach about bunnies in springtime and Easter Sunday. That won't cut it. But here's what I'm looking for. An assembly that is centered in the Word of God, reading the Bible, and preaching its message of God's law and gospel, not necessarily with a Norwegian accent. A church that 
knows and understands, believes and loves the whole counsel of God, gathering around the table of the Lord, partaking of the life-giving meal of bread and wine, and participating in acts of worship by praying and singing. We are talking about the quintessential practices of proclaiming the word of God and administering the sacraments instituted by our Lord. Of course, these things are done differently from place to place. High church, low church, broad church, just so it's real church. None of the marks or attributes of the church make sense without these practices, proclaiming the word of God according to the scriptures and celebrating the holy sacraments instituted by our Lord himself. And when they are performed faithfully, they will generate the spirit of welcoming to strangers, of sharing the staples of life to those in need, and collaboration with fellow Christians to preach the gospels, to preach the gospel to those who do not yet believe. Luther said a seven-year-old child knows what the church is, namely holy believers and sheep who hear the voice of the shepherd. He was re reacting to people who make things too complicated by adding on this or that, perhaps a particular style of worship, a particular organizational structure, a particular type of piety, a particular code of conduct. No, the church is where Jesus Christ is really present through word and sacrament in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is enough to make the church one holy Catholic and apostolic. So I close now with some words from Martin Luther's explanation of the third article of the creed. The Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and makes holy the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one common true faith. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.